Turn to the book of John, chapter 3. We're going to read the end of John 3 and into the beginning of chapter 4. We're going to be looking at baptism this morning, which is an important topic. And it's a place where our church is a bit outside the norm. So it's, uh, it's convenient to be able to talk about it. <clears throat> How are we outside of the norm? Well, we're outside of the norm in that I believe in infant baptism, that believers and their children should be baptized. And then there's Paul, Paul the other pastor of the church, doesn't believe that, and that's abnormal, that you would have two men in leadership who would believe different things about baptism. And so, Paul thinks that only believers should be baptized, not together with their children. So that makes us, like I said, somewhat outside of the norm. And what we see in this passage is that baptism is not the focus. Okay, but it's brought up a few different times. And we'll notice that on the one hand, it is quite important, obviously so, in, in the text. But that on the other hand, it's also of secondary importance. And as we study this morning, what we'll find is that we are going to be warned against either making less of baptism than we should or making it more important than it is. Okay? So this, this passage is um, an encouragement to us to unity in this body. Please stand for the reading of God's Word from John chapter 3. I'm going to start in verse 22, and we're going to read through verse 3 of chapter 4. After these things, Jesus and his disciples came into the land of Judea, and there he was spending time with them and baptizing. John also was baptizing in Ainan, near Salim, because there was much water there, and people were coming and were being baptized, for John had not yet been thrown into prison. Therefore there arose a discussion on the part of John's disciples with a Jew about purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who is with you beyond the Jordan, to whom you have testified, behold, he is baptizing, and all are coming to him. John answered and said, A man can receive nothing unless it has been given him from heaven. You yourselves are my witnesses that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent ahead of him. He who has the bride is the bridegroom, but the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. So this joy of mine has been made full. He must increase, but I must decrease. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth is from the earth and speaks of the earth. He who comes from heaven is above all. What he has seen and heard, of that he testifies, and no one receives his testimony. He who has received his testimony has set his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent speaks the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. He who believes in the Son has eternal life, but he who does not obey the Son will not see life, 
but the wrath of God abides on him. Therefore, when the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself was not baptizing, but his disciples were, he left Judea and went away again into Galilee. And that's where we'll end this morning. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. The Bible says a lot more about baptism in other places, obviously, than we see here. Uh, But this text is one of the only places where baptizing is mentioned in the book of John. There's a few uh, before this, and there's one more place in chapter 10 where we see baptism discussed. Whereas, throughout the other Gospels, you see baptism sort of interspersed throughout the rest of uh, the story. If you just do a search for bap- uh, you know, it's kind of hard because you've got so many words, baptize, baptized, baptism. But if you, if you look across all of them at the Bible, obviously the New Testament is where you see it, and obviously uh, there are in the some of the New Testament letters, a lot more discussion and teaching on the particulars of baptism. But John stands somewhat unique in the Gospels as talking about baptizing going on right near the beginning and then really no more mention of it. But what we do learn about baptism here is that there are some dangers Okay? And the first danger is to ignore baptism or to make it inconsequential in our minds. Why do I say that, we, that that would be a danger that we could learn from this passage? Well, because what we see is that John used baptism as a central part of his ministry in preparing people for the coming of Jesus. John was baptizing people as as they repented of their sins. So, baptism was very central to the work of John the Baptist, and that's why he has the name John the Baptist, right? But we also see that Jesus was baptizing at the very beginning of his ministry, as people were coming to him. Okay, so... From the very beginning of the spread of the gospel, we see that baptism accompanies that spread, right? And so, then when you combine that together with the Great Commission, where Jesus commands it in his his final instructions that he gives before he ascends into heaven as he's speaking to the disciples, and he includes baptizing them, when he says, go and make disciples, right? Baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So, to ignore the method of John in proclaiming the gospel, to ignore the method of Jesus in proclaiming the gospel, and the connection that they had in that work to baptism, 
would be problematic on its own. But then when you bring in the Great Commission, it's so important, it's so impossible for us to to, uh, dismiss baptism as something of no importance. Right? We, we cannot do that. There's no way of reading the New Testament and thinking, well, baptism is confusing, and so eh, who cares? If we were to do that, it would be simply our laziness and disobedience. Right? It is a matter of obedience, and it is meant to be at the start of our obedience, of our repentance. This is why John was doing it right as he began. This is why Jesus was doing it right as he began. It's why we see in Acts that when souls were added to their number, that they were baptized, right? So the first danger would be to ignore baptism or to make it inconsequential in our minds. Obviously, it matters that we are obeying Jesus Christ and his command in the Great Commission, that we're following his method, and that we are connecting baptism with being added to our number, right? If people are added to our number, they need to be baptized, or we haven't been following the method that Jesus described and prescribed, right? Described with his ministry and then prescribed with his teaching. But the second danger is really on the opposite side of the road, a different ditch that we can fall into, okay? And that is to make baptism into more than Jesus treats it as. And the way we see that in this passage is this interesting little side note where it says that Jesus wasn't actually baptizing people. Now, I know I just got done saying that, Jesus, that one of the ways we see that baptism is important is because Jesus started out his ministry and he was baptizing people, but the text makes this little clarifying remark that actually it wasn't Jesus himself that was doing the baptizing, but rather he had his disciples do it. Did you catch that while we were reading it? Now, what does this remind you of? You may not have ever noticed this passage that that Jesus was ever doing baptizing. And if you did remember that Jesus was doing baptizing, you may have forgotten that Actually, he wasn't the one who was doing it, but he had his disciples do it. All right. But once you think of that, is there any other place in the New Testament that it reminds you of? There's one that jumps right out to me as very similar, and that is the ministry of Paul. What does Paul say about baptism that's similar? Paul is focused on preaching the gospel. Many are converted. Many are baptized through his ministry. And yet, at one point he says, actually, I didn't 
baptize any of you. Well, there was so-and-so, and then he keeps going. And he goes, oh, yeah, and, and maybe the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I don't remember anybody else. You guys remember reading that, where Paul does that? What's Paul's point? Paul's point is similar to the point that we get from this passage, which is that there's something more important for Jesus to be doing than to be actually performing the baptisms. There's something more important for Paul to be doing than to be actually spending his time on the baptisms. Do you see that? Which isn't to say that it doesn't matter whether people obey. Which isn't to say that if there's nobody else to do the baptizing, that, you know, oh, well, you know, I'm sorry, I've got to pray. (laughs) No, of course not, right? But what we see is that Paul is focused on preaching the gospel. Who baptizes for Paul? In, in, as he is proclaiming the gospel, it, it doesn't actually, I don't think the passage actually says. He's got all of these other men in ministry with him, traveling with him as he goes around from place to place. And so clearly what we see is that those men served in a variety of ways. They served Paul, they served the people in a variety of ways, but one of the ways must have been that they performed the baptisms because Paul wasn't doing it. At least in that one city, right? So as long as we are baptized into the Christian faith in a manner consistent with Jesus' commands, who baptizes us is of little importance. Jesus' disciples weren't even baptized by him. Who were Jesus' disciples baptized by? John. Remember, some of his disciples he were, had been disciples of John. And Jesus himself was baptized by John. Right? One of those, one of those things that's always really weird and hard to get your mind wrapped around. Jesus, our Lord, being baptized by John. But today, well, very early on, actually, in church history, and still today, there is a tendency to make baptism into something more than Scripture allows for it to be. To make it of greater import. Okay? So one of the, one of the ways that we do this is by making baptism itself the means of salvation. Okay? Or one, another way of describing this is baptismal regeneration. So here in Cincinnati, uh, it's a very 
heavily Roman Catholic area and also a very um, heavily influenced by the Church of Christ, Disciples of Christ movement. Both of those churches have a similarity in that they teach baptismal regeneration. Now, what is baptismal regeneration? Well, baptismal regeneration is the idea that by getting baptized, your soul will be regenerated. I touched on this a little bit earlier when we were in the beginning of John chapter 3, and Jesus was speaking about the necessity of, the re, of being reborn, of the new birth, right? This is the necessity of regeneration. And what we don't see Jesus do back in the beginning of chapter 3 when he's speaking with Nicodemus is say, well, just let me baptize you and it'll all be good. Right? What he says is you must be baptized by the water and the spirit. And so what we see is that there's this very strong temptation to make baptism into something more than an act of obedience by faith and instead make it into the, uh, the creation of faith. But what we see with John and with Jesus is that repentance is absolutely essential. As part of baptism, right? So now Paul's back there like clapping. Yay! Preach it, Baptist, you know. <laughs> but it's necessary for us to look at this passage and to see it. And no, I don't think that this has anything to do with whether babies should or shouldn't be baptized. Paul obviously would say it does, right? Now, why do I bring up a disagreement between Paul and I right in the middle of the sermon? Well, the reason I bring it up is because I want to move on now into the third danger, which is making disagreements about baptism into unnecessary controversy and division. Okay? There is the, the danger of making baptism into something more than it is. It, we'll have plenty of times where we can deal with that. And we'll have to because it's just an ongoing temptation for all of us to want to have some sort of physical thing that we can say, well, I've got that, and therefore everything's good, right? I've been baptized, and therefore I've been regenerated. But there's no such guarantee, right? So moving into this third danger is to make disagreements about baptism into unnecessary controversy, into unnecessary division, is a terrible, terrible problem. Okay? In other words, I think there should be 
a lot more churches like our church with regard to baptism. Verse 25 of chapter 3, which we read, we see what appears to be a conflict over baptism and its relation to purification. It says, therefore, there arose a discussion on the part of John's disciples with a Jew about purification. Okay, so it doesn't mention baptism there. But in the context, verse 22 says Jesus was baptizing in one place. Verse 23 says John was baptizing in another place. And more people were coming to him and were being baptized. All right. And verse 25, therefore, there arose a discussion about purification. Okay, when you're talking about baptism, 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 and then a discussion about purification comes up, you're talking about baptism. Okay? <laughs> because what is baptism? Baptism is washing with water. Purifying, right? That's what baptism is. It's a washing with water, a purification. And it's symbolic of the washing away of our sins. And that's why repentance comes first. Right? So it seems clear <clears throat> that the conflict would be about baptism. And then it makes it almost impossible to miss because the very next verse it says after they, they, were getting, they were in this conflict with this Jew about purification then what do they do? They come to John and they say Rabbi, he who is with you beyond the Jordan to whom you have testified behold, he's baptizing and all are coming to him. Okay, so baptism conflict Rabbi John That guy's baptizing. What's, you know, is his baptism better or is your baptism better? And John says, he must increase, but I, might, I must decrease. What does John say about baptism? What does John say about purification? Does John enter into the conversation, the conflict, about purification? No. And that's the point. Baptism is a sign and a seal of the covenant. Ephesians 4, 5 says that there is one Lord, one faith, one baptism. Right? Now, either that means something, or it doesn't. If it doesn't, we're not Christians. Right? But if it does mean something, then really, there's only a couple of choices. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. Let's, let's turn there. Ephesians 4, verse 5. Let's read the rest of the context. We'll start in verse 4. There is one body and one spirit, 
just as also you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. So what is that saying? Well, what it, what it begins to show to us is that we've got to decide. There are going to be some things where the baptism that has happened, we will reject, and the reason we will reject the baptism is why? Because we reject their faith. We cannot reject their baptism without rejecting that they are of the faith. Do you see that? One Lord, one faith, one baptism. And so, yes, if they're not of the faith, then yes, the baptism is gone. It's, uh, you know, if, it doesn't matter whether... Uh, they were baptized in a, in a Bible-believing church. The baptism has not accomplished their regeneration because they do not have faith. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. On the other hand, if we say that they are believers we must not deny their baptism. Do you understand? Now this gets complicated really quickly. Okay, because as soon as I say you must not deny their baptism, then you're going to come up with all of these what-ifs. Okay, but what if? Well, but what if they, you know, and you're going to come up with these some, some really crazy ideas, like, um, well, what if they were baptized into the Mormon faith? So you really, and then, and, and then they become Christians. Really, we shouldn't reject? And I would say, no, absolutely, we reject that baptism, right? But why do we reject the baptism? Is it because their water isn't good enough? No, it's because there is one Lord, one faith, one baptism. And because they are not of the faith, we reject that baptism. They have not been baptized into the church of Jesus Christ. Okay? One body. One spirit. So those choices are before us. The people who hold different positions and different practices on baptism, either they aren't in the faith or they are. And if we're willing to say that people who believe and act differently than us with regard to the doctrine of baptism are still actually Christians, then we must be willing to accept their baptism. 
as wrong as we think they are. Do you understand? We must still be willing to accept their baptism. This is a big problem in a lot of Baptist churches. It's not as big a problem in Presbyterian churches. All right? But there are an awful lot of Baptist churches that will say, oh yeah, you're a Christian, but your baptism is no good. You've got to have your baptism redone. Your baptism is no good. Why? Well, because it was done by a Presbyterian. Does it matter who does the baptism? You get what I'm saying? That's what we're seeing in our passage. It doesn't really matter. John isn't so concerned. What matters is we've got one baptism between John the Baptist and our Lord Jesus Christ. So if the people that hold to different positions from us with regard to baptism, if we are willing to say that they are in the faith, that they are Christians, all right, then what is holding us back from fellowship or unity? The answer is nothing. Nothing. Can there be things that would hold us back from fellowship and or unity? Practically speaking, yes, there can be all kinds of things, right? It can be, it can be practically impossible to hold opposing positions on, on, on various theological things where we would say, yes, you're a Christian, we completely disagree about this. And that is such a major disagreement that it would be very difficult for us to... Uh, be in unity in the, in the local church. But what I submit to you this morning is that the time and the mode of baptism are not practically difficult to work with one another with differing practices and differing teachings. So now you come back and you're like, okay, but pastor, I'm confused. Because you say it doesn't matter, but what about baptismal regeneration? <laughs> Didn't you just get done warning us? Well, why do we reject baptismal regeneration? Is it because of the baptism? No, we reject baptismal regeneration because it strikes at the faith. The more important thing that Paul was worrying about, that Jesus was worrying about, right? That's why we reject it, why we reject it. Not because of the baptismal practice itself.
So what about oneness Pentecostals? We reject the baptism of oneness Pentecostals. Why do we reject the baptism of oneness Pentecostals? Because they will not obey Jesus baptizing in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. They will only baptize in the name of Jesus or in the name of the Spirit. Okay? And not only that, because you might be able to you might be able to actually say okay well uh, let's talk about that but where does that come from where it comes from is a rejection of the trinity and so are we one lord one faith one baptism with them no is it because of their baptisms no it's because we don't share the faith with them. Do you understand? So this is why this morning I want us to see, you know, Jesus himself was not baptizing. That clearly lowers this, this mysticism that we want to make baptism into. It's like a punch in the face to people who want to make baptism into all that. You know? Oh, but Jesus himself didn't bother to actually do it. What? And John is going, he must increase, but I must decrease. Yeah, but what about baptism, his disciples are saying? What about the purification? Jesus is baptizing. He must increase. I must decrease. Unity is possible despite differences concerning baptism. Okay? So let's give it the proper place of priority. Not making it into this magical, mystical, superpower thing either that gives you regeneration or that guarantees that you can never lose your faith or any of the wonderful things that we wish we could do by just taking a physical action of baptism, right? Can't make it into that. On the other hand, we can't ignore it. We have to obey, obey Jesus. But John and Jesus and Paul are all more concerned about the message and faith. Baptism is consequential, but it is in consequence. We come into the faith, therefore we get baptized. come into the faith, therefore we get baptized. Now all of you Baptists out there that want to then talk to me about how it is that I could say that infants of children of believers should be baptized, we can talk about that afterwards. I'm not here to try to explain 
the continuity and discontinuity of the covenant. I'm here to try to make the proper points about baptism, what is important and what is unimportant. Right? And the faith is important. Whether you were, whether you were baptized as an infant or whether you were baptized as uh, a teenager whether you were baptized in your 30s or whether you're baptized in your 70s, and regardless of when your faith happened in that process, before or after or in the midst of your baptism, okay, what matters is two things. That you have faith, that you repent and believe the message that John and Jesus and Paul all are united in, and that then you obey And if you haven't been baptized, you get baptized. And if you have been baptized, there's one Lord, one faith, one baptism. Amen? Let's pray.